We come this morning to our sermon passage, and we are continuing on in our sermon series in the Ten Commandments. And this morning we are actually at the Eighth Commandment. I feel like this has flown by. Um, uh, so the, uh, the Eighth Commandment, it's uh, verse 15 in Exodus 20. Um, it's printed for you in your bulletin, or you can turn there in your Bible now. And as you're doing that, um, you don't need to be a fan of Lord of the Rings um, to get this, but if you are, maybe it'll help. There's a character in the Lord of the Rings called Gollum. It's kind of everybody's favorite, secretly. My precious. It's the, you know what I'm talking about, if you've seen it. And when we first meet this character, he seems just like absolute evil. He's a monster. He's disfigured physically. He's scary to look at. He's scary to hear talk. When we first meet him, his life entirely revolves around this golden ring that he has. He calls it his precious. It's his greatest treasure. He lives cut off from everyone else in the entire world. He lives alone, almost in complete darkness. He lives in this cave system underneath a mountain. And this ring has a profound power over him. And it has like a magic property that gives him long life. Um, But it's come at a great cost. Because what we discover about this character is that he wasn't a monster at all. He was an ordinary guy. He was an ordinary guy with family, with friends, with a home. But when he discovered this ring, this desire to have it, to, for it to be his, for it to be his treasured possession, it overtook his heart. It overtook his life. We discovered that he was an ordinary guy, but he stole for it. He even killed for it. And eventually, he lost his home. He lost his family. He lost everything. But he had this thing. He lost everything else, but he had this thing and it changed him in body and soul into something unrecognizable to what he was before. The thing that was most precious to him that he got, it took more than it gave, but he couldn't let it go. I think there's a great insight in a lot of the Lord of the Rings. I think there's a great insight in Gollum about what can happen when we allow a thing to have the ultimate place in our lives and imaginations, when our hearts and our imaginations become so wrapped up in a something. Now, it's not going to be a magical ring. There's no such thing as magical rings for us. But it could be getting a thing, getting that dream house, getting that dream car, getting any number of things, getting that trophy. We become obsessed with getting and keeping that thing above everything else. And that's what we're talking about here in the 8th commandment. With that said, we will read the passage now. It's Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, verse 15. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. And God spoke these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not steal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that in it, We see who you are, that you use scripture to reveal who you are and what you're about. And so you show us as well who we are in you. In these moments, as we attend to the treasures of your word, move by your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, to see all that is ours in Christ. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, what we've done in all these Ten Commandments sermons, I've broken them up in the same three uh, sections. We're basically answering the same three questions every week. Who we are, who are we in the gospel is the first question. Number two is how do we live as God's freed people? And number three is how does this freedom lead us in the mission? 
And so for this first section, just to do a little recap background, as I've said every week, the Ten Commandments are not God giving us a list of things to do, and if we do these things, then He will love us. A lot of times we can kind of think that way. I talked to a guy years ago who was telling me, um, we were actually talking about religious stuff, and I was like, if you were standing in front of God, you know, if you died and you stood in front of God, and and He said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And this guy said, well, I've kept all the Ten Commandments. I don't steal. I've never killed anybody. I was like, that's good. Um, Don't commit adultery. I was like, that's also good. He was like that rich young ruler in the passage we read at the beginning. But that's not what the Ten Commandments are. It's not what God is doing ever when he tells us something to do, when he asks us to obey him. Because what we learn about here. And it's why we read the first two verses of Exodus 20. The way God introduces the Ten Commandments, even right here when he's telling them, is he starts with talking about himself and what he's done. I am the Lord your God, and I've brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It begins with God's redeeming work. And so when he gives the Ten Commandments, it's not a list of things to do for you to earn my love. You are people that I already love. You are people that I have brought out of slavery. Here's how to live as my freed people. Grace goes first always, always. And so the first four commandments God gives firmly fix our eyes on him. They're entirely about our vertical relationship with God. And the last six commandments kind of broadens our vision out and answers the question, what does that mean for our horizontal relationships with each other. And so we walked through it the last few weeks. In the fifth commandment, you shall honor your father and mother. Those show us how we are to relate with those histories, those past, those people who have formed us, that have made us us. In the sixth commandment, you shall not kill, it tells us not just like don't murder anybody, it means be about the lives of others. Human life above everything else. The commandment we looked at last week, you shall not commit adultery. It tells us that our bodies matter, and what we do with our bodies matters. And this week we're in the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, and it teaches us this. Who are we in the gospel? We are not things, number one, and we are not our things, number two. We are not things, and we're not our stuff. The stuff we accumulate is not who we are. That's what it tells us. That's the background that's going to undergird everything else in this sermon. And we're going to look at both of those before we move on. We are not things, and we are not our things. Let's get the first one. We are not things. The Israelites who are hearing these words from God at Mount Sinai, they had just been redeemed from slavery. They had been brought out of Egypt where they were things. They were not people, not to Pharaoh at least, not to the Egyptians. They were things. When Pharaoh first enslaves them, it says because he looks out and he counts them and gets afraid, there's too many Israelites. If they decide to band together, they can overthrow me. So when he looks out and he sees them flourishing and thriving and there's tons of Israelite children running around, he's scared because all he can see are things. All he can see is numbers that scare him. And so he enslaves them. And he puts them under hard labor and he learns what all slave masters and all employers that underpay their their employees have learned throughout history. If you don't pay your labor, it's incredibly productive. It's incredibly wealth producing. 
So in that first chapter in, in, in Exodus, uh, Pharaoh enslaves the, the Israelites, and they have to build two store cities to store all the wealth. They have to build two like massive cities that are essentially banks to store all the wealth that's being produced by these slaves. They had been things. Things, not people. But now that they're free, they're not going to be things. God has freed them for a different way of life. And if that is clear anywhere, there's a number of ways that we could think about this in the way it unfolds in Scripture, in the Old Testament. But if that is clear anywhere, it is when we talk about the topic of slavery. When we talk about the topic of slavery. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have like businesses and corporations that would employ people. That did not exist. So you generally kind of did not work for somebody unless you were their bondservant. You were their slave. But when we compare what slavery or being a servant was in Egypt or the rest of the ancient world, and when we comp- it to, to what it meant to be a servant or a slave in Israel, it's, it's night or day. Though it, it shouldn't even be the same word to describe it. Here's what I mean. In, in Egypt, slaves were the property of people. They were owned and could be bought or sold. It was a lot like the slavery in America before the Civil War. Literally, property could be bought or sold at any time. You could kidnap somebody and make them a slave. They couldn't do it. If you had the, enough physical power, you could kidnap them and sell them into slavery per, for profit. And if a slave ever escaped... And they were caught, they would be beaten. And if you harbored, if you were helping a slave that was running away, you would be prosecuted legally. It was against the law. That was all true in Egypt. But in Israel, things were much different. In Israel, the only way someone could enter into a relationship of being a servant or a slave is if they did it voluntarily. It was essentially them going to work for somebody under a contract. It could never last more than six years. Because every seven years, everybody who had entered into slavery voluntarily was set free. So first, you know, this is like contract stuff from the 17th. Anyway, um, it's completely different. And you could not, there was no slave market where you sold or bought people or kidnap them to put them in slavery. In fact, um, one of the laws in the Old Testament is if you kidnapped somebody or stole them, um, you were liable for capital punishment. Like it warranted capital punishment, the death penalty. If you kidnapped somebody and sold them into slavery, even if they weren't in your possession anymore, if they could prove it happened, death penalty. That's how serious it was taken. And a person who was a slave could literally run away at any time. At any time. And if you were somebody just going about your business and a runaway slave came to you, uh, let me just read what it says in Deuteronomy 23. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. All of this like gutted the concept of what slavery actually was. Made the word almost meaningless 
in Israel. People were not things. They could go to work for somebody. Let's say they fell on hard times. There was a famine and they ran out of money or something. They could go to somebody and say, I'll sell myself into servitude for these number of years. The person say, okay. But if they wanted to leave at any time, they could. They ran away at any time, it was fine. And if somebody came to you, you weren't prosecuted for helping escape slave. You were encouraged to. You were told not to hand them over to their master. This, per, this was a profound statement, especially in the ancient world, to the Israelites. You are not things, and other people are not things either. They're not. They are not your property. People are not things. You are not things. But remember I said there was a, a, a second section to this of who we are in the gospel. Not just we are not things, but people are not their things. We're not our stuff. No one is measured or valued by what they own. The rich were not more important than the poor. And in fact, Israelite society was structured so that everyone got what they needed. And it was structured purposefully to keep there being a class of people called the rich that were permanently rich, who just passed down uh, massive amounts of wealth and people who were poor generationally. There were no cycles of poverty in Israel. It was impossible to happen. And that, uh, in fact... Um, everybody, the design was for them to have what they needed. And, of course, possessions mattered. It wasn't a communist society. But possessions, even possessions were regulated. What always mattered more than possessions was human life and human flourishing. And that's the essence of this commandment, you shall not steal. It's not, little kid at the grocery store, don't take a candy bar. I mean, don't take a candy bar, guy. Like, don't. Go steal a candy bar. But that's not the essence of what it meant. In Scripture, stealing is taking from somebody or keeping from somebody what they need to live. That is what stealing is. Not just going on somebody's property and taking something. It's taking from somebody or keeping from somebody what they need to live. Now, again, I'm not saying there's no such thing as private property. It is okay to have things. It's okay for us to have things. It's not okay for things to have us. And that's a subtle difference, but it's a big difference. Things will not be the deciding factor in how we live our lives. And we'll, if it is, we'll fool ourselves into ways of life that chase after accumulating stuff without care about how it impacts other people. We'll become, we'll become golem. We'll become monsters. Cut off from everybody else. So who are we in the gospel? We are not things, and we are not our things. So that brings me to my second section. How do we live as God's free people? So we're not things, we're not our things. We're freed up to live in God's kingdom where everybody is to have enough. And that's actually what's going on here in the Eighth Commandment. God is putting in front of his people a vision of a community where everybody has what they need to live. We can see this in how the Israelite society was structured. So the law was given, and in a couple of decades, the Israelites are going to be coming into the promised Land. God's brought them from slavery. I'm taking you into this promised land. And when they get there, it's not like they get to the edge, somebody fires a gun, and they run off and get their property. Like, whoever's fastest gets the best land. I don't know if you've ever seen Far and Away, the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman movie from the early 90s, but it's about these Irish immigrants that have moved over, and it, you know, America's spreading west, and they've parceled out all these lands, and they literally have a race. Like, they're all lined up, 
and they're supposed to wait for the shot, and then they run, and they're, they're trying to get, I want the piece of land that's got the river running through it. Like one guy runs too fast, and the authorities literally shoot him because you're not supposed to go until... That's not what it was when the Israelites got to the promised land. In fact, when they get there, every Israelite family gets land. Every single one. Now, not everyone and not every tribe will get the same amount of land or the same type of land because different regions have different features. But the emphasis is that everyone, every family has enough. They have the land they need to live and survive. And everybody has access to all the resources that can lead to growth and thriving. In other words, in Israel, land was not given for you to just use it however you wanted to. It wasn't. We can see that in the... There's a, there's a number of uh, regulations, especially in Deuteronomy, uh, about land um, that are good for instance of this. So the first one, if a neighbor, if your neighbor or a foreigner was coming through your land and they were hungry, and I don't mean like, I forgot to pack a lunch, I mean they're hungry. Maybe they lost their land somehow and they've got to wait for it to come back around um, for them to get it back. You could not keep them from picking food on your land. So if they need wheat, now they they can't bring it, they literally spell it out this way, you can't bring a basket with you. So it's not talking about, you know, going into your neighbor's land and just picking all their food. But if someone was hungry, the expectation was for you to allow them to come on your land to pick your olives, to pick your grapes, to pick your wheat, because they needed to eat. That meant you did not control, essentially, everything that happened on your land. And the idea was the land's not actually yours. You're a tenant on this land that belongs to God. And He has given land so that everybody has what they need to live and thrive. It's a remarkable thing. Uh, There's another law. When you harvested your crops, so you're a farmer and you're going through to harvest your wheat at the right time, you could only go through one time. If you left anything else behind, if there were, or you went to your vine and you didn't get all the grapes, you were not to go back through a second time. You left that food there for the widow, for the orphan, for the foreigner. You didn't go through twice. It's a remark. It, it, it offends all of my American sensibilities, honestly. I read it and I'm shocked and a little bit offended and I don't like it. But this is the way the, structure, the society was structured. And if you ever bought land, there wasn't really a real estate market in Israel. If you bought land, you didn't keep it in your family for generations. If you bought land from somebody who had fallen on hard times, it returned back to their family at most in 49 years. Because every 50 years, there was a jubilee year where all debts were wiped clean. Everybody who had sold themselves into servitude was set free. And the land was returned back to the families that it originally belonged to. Those are just regulations for land. There are all kinds of regulations related to employment or loans or how to act toward people who had fallen on hard times. Take these for instance. In Israel, you could not charge interest on anything. There were no markets where you could charge interest to somebody else. Now, they allowed it when, they, uh, when uh, global trade happened. So if they were trading with the Phoenicians, that was allowed. But in Israel, your neighbor... If they came to you and they needed a loan, 
or my crop failed and I need help, you could not charge interest. It was disallowed. You could not make a profit off of somebody else's need. And if you made a loan to somebody and they said, well, I don't have anything, but here's my collateral. Or here's what I'm going to give to you as collateral, as a a promise that I'm going to pay it back. If they didn't give it to you, you could not go, it's explicitly sped up, you could not go into their house to get it. Like repossession didn't happen. (laughs) And if it was a poor person especially, let's say it spells it out too, if they give you their cloak as collateral, like their coat, you give it back to them every single day at nighttime. Because they need that cloak to keep themselves warm. Their their ability to rest well is more important than your legal right as the person who had loaned them money. If you made a loan and somebody didn't pay it back, the, the books were wiped clean every seven years. Every seven years. Debt's forgiven across the board. And if you hired a day laborer, so somebody who's not a servant who sold themselves for a number of years, but you know they're wanting to work for a day in a field, you had to pay them by sundown of the same day. The same day. It was a priority. You don't hold on to their wages and pay them later. You pay them the day they do the work. The point of all of this is not to, you know, I'm not trying to get us to institute some different labor law. (laughs) I'm not a political candidate trying to say we need to put these regulations in place. But the point of all this is that in ancient Israel, it was designed to make the reality that people are the point and not things real. Like it wasn't just an idea people said. It was designed to be structured this way so that in the day-in, day-out way of life for God's people, they knew. That person over there, no matter who they are, how they fall in hard times or why they need a loan, they're not a thing for me to make money off of. They're not a thing. They're a person created in the image and likeness of God with inherent dignity and worth. And I'm, I'm to be about their life. It's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing. And in fact, this is a little bit mind-blowing to me. When Scripture speaks about stealing... I said it a minute ago. Stealing in Scripture is to uh, keep from or take from what people need to live. If you didn't do the things that I've listed with your land, that was stealing. It's remarkable. If you did not allow the hungry to come on your land to eat when they were famished, that was stealing. If you charged interest on a loan to somebody who needed help, that was stealing. It's remarkable. If you didn't allow the poor to pick from your fields, you were stealing from them. Now this offends, I said it a minute ago, it offends my sensibilities as an American. I've imbibed as someone who grew up here, has lived here, all the values that are structured in our society. And I'm not uh, calling for revolution or anything. But I think owning land or owning something means I can kind of do whatever I want to with it, right? I, I own this. This is mine. I, do, I decide who comes on my land. I'm going to keep them out. That's just good business sense, right? To accumulate a lot of land. If, we wanna, if I want to rent out a house and I charge the highest amount the market will allow me to, that's just being smart. 
If somebody owes me money, I'll take whatever I want from them, repossession-wise. But as God calls us into His kingdom, He calls us into a community and a new way of life that is founded on compassion and grace. And that was true of the Israelites who had been freed from slavery into a new kind of life. It is even more true for us who are not just redeemed from something uh, like a political slavery or a physical slavery, as heinous and horrible as that is, but as people who have been redeemed from slavery to sin, as people who have been found by the grace of God and set free, this is exceptionally true for us. We are called to live a life that is about other people and that abounds in compassion, that does not treat people or ourselves like we're things, that does not treat other people or ourselves like we are the stuff that we've accumulated. We're not. That's a lie from the pit of hell. All for us is grace. Every good gift we have is not a paycheck. We didn't earn it. Working hard's great. Getting paid for your work is great. But when we pull the veil back and we grow in maturity in Christ, we come to see it's all grace. It really is. I am absolutely carried along in every second of my life by the grace of God. The early Christians knew that. The earliest followers of Jesus, just after he ascended into heaven, he gave them this commission to go and make disciples in the world. The first thing they did was found a community in the city of Jerusalem that lived out this ideal. Now, they didn't go to uh, Pilate who was still in charge of everything in Jerusalem, and say, here's the laws that you need to institute to make sure that the Roman Empire is lined up with the ideals of ancient Israel. That wasn't what they did. They lived this out in community with each other. We see it at the very end of Acts chapter 2. The new church is founded. There's thousands of people that have suddenly come in, and they look around, and as people have needs, people are literally selling their property off. So that they have money to give to people who need it. To the point that it is said in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, which was a few years later, that there were, quote, no poor among them. Everybody had what they needed to live and to thrive. And they lived together in community. Now, it was voluntary. Again, I'm not calling for a communist regime. I'm not telling you you need to go sell everything and give it to me and I'll distribute it out. That's not, don't do that. Don't give me any money. <laughs> don't give me any property. Um, but for the early church, the living out of this reality was a profound statement that the gospel was true. How did people come to know in that early Roman Empire that this story was true? Is because they felt it. They knew it. They saw people living lives that they couldn't account for. And they said, why? Why would you sell property for this person that you're not connected to who really messed up? Why would you give up of your wealth for this person who's kind of getting what they deserve anyway, right? The way they talked about the poor is a lot of the ways we talk about the poor. But people knew the gospel was true and valid and worth looking into because they could look right in front of their eyes and see this kind of thing happening. 
The sharing was voluntary. It wasn't forced. But again, it was a profound living out of the reality of what we've talked about. That we are not things and we are not our things. And people are the point. And that leads me to my last section. How does this freedom lead us into mission? Our calling's not to get Old Testament laws put into place here in America. That's a waste of time. Lots of Christians try to do that. It's a waste of resources and money and time. It really is. But the same reality that God was calling the Israelites to to live into is ours, and how they lived it out then can help us learn how to live it out now. So how do we live it out? I want to call it open-handed living. Open-handed living. It's a life of generosity where we hold things loosely. We don't hold on to them. We don't grab on to them. We live with open hands. We hold things loosely. And we live a life that doesn't reach out to grab anything from anybody else where we don't see other people's problems or needs as opportunities to make a buck. Where we realize that we are not things and they are not things, and we, none of us are our things, that we are delighted, of, delighted in children of God and who don't need any, to do anything to earn that or maintain that, but we can live within the generosity of the God who cares for us. We can take Him at His word that He'll supply our needs. Where we hold on to our things with loose hands because we realize that our hands may be needed to help somebody. And when it comes to us holding on to our stuff or having hands ready to help, that the, having the hands ready to help is always the right option. Where we see the things given to us as resources put into our trust to be used for the good of others. Where we live out this ideal that we found in the Old Testament that we don't just have property rights, but we have property responsibilities. That the good gifts that we have come with a calling to put them to work, to put them to use for the glory of God and the good of others. Where the claim that, quote-unquote, I own it is never a final answer to a need at hand. But there's an important thing to realize about what I'm calling this open-handed living. The open-handed life isn't one that just holds things loosely because it's prepared to give them up. The open-handed life is always ready to receive. A closed hand cannot receive. An open-handed life can, and this is in truth the life of faith. It's what Jesus was talking about at the beginning. We receive the kingdom of God like children or not at all. Kids don't have possessions. Kids don't have jobs. (laughs) Economically, kids bring nothing to the table in the family household, right? I mean, they bring joy and life and I love children. Um, yeah, kids, don't hear me like knocking you. You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to. But that's what Jesus was talking about, coming into his kingdom with open hands. And we take on this posture, and we don't leave this posture behind of receiving, where we open our eyes to realize that all the good that we have is grace. This is the life of faith. It's a posture of turning outward, a recognition that I don't have in myself what I need to be made whole. So open my hands. And I find that God never fails to give. That His grace is never not sufficient. And that His mercies are new every single day. And my open hands are ready to receive that grace every single day. 
I am ready every single day to be surprised and baffled at how he shows his love to me. You know, I think stealing and chasing after wealth and accumulating a lot of stuff is just a warped copy of faith. It's like the bizarro world version of faith. It's looking rightly outside of ourselves to find what we need, but it's looking in the wrong place. Because if, just imagine, even if you accumulate all the stuff you want, if you come out on the better end of every single deal, if you can make things work to your advantage and get the most, you will still leave this world exactly the way you came into it without anything. What's the old saying? You never see a U-Haul hooked up to a hearse. But this open-handed life, this life of faith is always ready to receive from God all that we need. And here's the good news for us. We are called into this open-handed living, not just as individuals. This is not just a call to us to individually become people who are very generous and open with others. This is meant to be lived in community. Because one of the ways we get provided for as we live in open-handed life is other people living open-handed lives. There are going to be seasons when you don't need anything, when you've got everything, when your bills are paid, when nobody's sick, you're fine. Those are seasons where you are probably going to be giving more than you're receiving. But those seasons don't last forever. There are going to be seasons when you have profound needs. There are going to be seasons when you are sick There may be seasons that you can't feed yourself or pay your bills. It's not a shameful thing. It's not because you're not your things. But in those seasons, you are carried along, or this is the design by others who are living that open-handed life. When we are together, joined in for each other, we stand as a powerful testimony to those around us that the gospel of Jesus is true. This, you know what is a good illustration of that today? Pot providence, potluck. We all came in and we brought dishes that we made. And you guys didn't bring them in and put them on the tables where you're sitting. You're not guarding them, right? Or in a minute, when we, I promise I'm wrapping up. In a minute, when we're back there, you're not going to be standing there with the spoon just scooping out tiny bits so you can get like 75% of it, right? If you did, that would be a really bad providence. But no, we brought of what we wanted to share, and we put it on that table, and we're all going to eat together. We're going to feast. We're going to be sated and satisfied in our stomachs and in our souls. This is a good illustration of the open-handed life. There's enough. There's enough among us for us to all have enough. There's enough for us to live together and to thrive together. We are not alone ever. You know, I started this sermon talking about the character of Gollum, someone who found this treasure so precious and dear to him that he sacrificed everything to have it, and he found himself dominated by that desire that he thought was precious to him. We meet a man like that in the Gospels. We talked about him at the very beginning, our call to worship. Scripture calls him a rich, young ruler. He's wealthy. He's young and vibrant. He's got power as a ruler. He's the guy we want on the team, right? 
But when he comes to Jesus, and I don't know if I've preached this sermon before, the man was standing there in the crowd listening to Jesus when Jesus said, the way to receive the kingdom is like a little child. That rich man heard that. When he runs to Jesus after he hears this, he is rejecting what Jesus just said. He's saying, I know you said that to them, but I'm rich, like really rich. And I've done all the right things, which is why, you know, Jesus lists the commandments. And he's like, I've done them all since I was a boy. The guy's saying, I got too much stuff. It would cost too much for me to come to you like a child. And when Jesus hits the heart of the matter, the very heart of the matter, and he tells him that his possessions are actually his lack. That's what he lacks, that he has too much. The man rejects Jesus and turns away because he loves his stuff. Guys, the call to us this morning is not just to not take stuff from people. Like, don't take stuff from people. Don't do that. Don't go rob a gas station or whatever. Don't do that. That's stealing. It is. But the call to us is not just to not take stuff from people. It's to know that we're not things. We're not our things. Neither are other people. It's to allow the reality, the gospel, and the truth of who Jesus is to peel our hearts off of that way of life that will only chew us up and spit us out. It's the call for us to come to God as His children with open hands to receive all that He has for us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You that we are not things. That You have opened our eyes to tell us that the, the things that are, we are so often told and the way our world is structured and that the things that we so often tell ourselves are actually lies. That we're not things to be used up. We are not our stuff that we've accumulated, so we don't have to go chasing after more to prove ourselves, but we are your delighted in children, precious to you. I pray that you cause this truth to sink deeply into our hearts, that we live this open-handed life, trusting you, receiving all the grace that you have for us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.